Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Well, welcome back. Gosh, it's good to be here. Where have I been? Well, Betsy and I had a safari in Namibia, and we're just recently back from that, and my goodness, what a wonderful adventure that was. We're going to be doing blogs and YouTube videos and covering that extensively, but for now, I need to catch up on answering some questions from all you good folks, especially our patrons. I got through these the other day, but I thought I'd share some of them with you now, and here is one from Sven, and just as you might suspect from that name, he is from Europe. He writes, greetings from the heartland of European hunting, Poland. My hunting buddy and I watch your show with great enthusiasm and share the joy of continuing the topics handled by you in further discussion between ourselves. However, a small addition to the history of case development that you mentioned quite frequently. Vigorously, you will tell how the 30-06 came from the 7x57, which came from the 8x57JS, which came from the 8x57I, and that is how it all started, or so you say. First of all, the 8x57JS is Germany, and in Germany is named the 7.92x57IS, meaning Infantry Spitz, and the 7.92x57I is Infantry. The error of the letters we suspect is due to the inability of American GIs to read Gothic letters where the I looks very much like J. <laughs> yes, sir, Sven, I have read that before too, and it's probably the case. Now comes to the big addition to you. From where you came, the 8x57, from, let me, from whence came the 8x57 that you describe as the first modern bottleneck cartridge? Actually, the German Reichswehr stole or borrowed the design from Denmark. Oh, this is some new information. The 8x58RD was developed in Denmark and used as the Danish standard military cartridge from 1889 to 1945. I did not know that, Sven. They simply removed the rim of the Danish cartridge. 
The 8x58RD was used in the Gewehr 1889, which was a Craig Jorgensen-style rifle. The uh, bottleneck, what bottleneck? Oh, the Danish 8x58RD was made from converting the Danish 11x4x51 rolling block cartridge into a bottleneck. We understand not to mention the old straight wall cartridge, but the German 8x57 was not the original bottleneck cartridge from which all the wonders of today grew. <laughs> this guy is setting things straight. So please do us the favor and mention the Danish 8x57RD as the parent case for the German 7.92x57I and IS, and by extension, the 30 at 6 and the 270 and the 308 and all the rest of them with that same rim and head size. Woo! Well, there was a lot of numbers here to digest, but the basics here, what Sven is telling us is that the uh, original bottleneck rimless case was not the German um, original, what we call 8x57i. It was this Danish cartridge, which had a rim, and all the Germans did when they stole it was take the rim off. And then we stole it with the rim off to make the 30-06, and boy, everybody's stealing from everybody. But I've said this many times before, and it's true. It's kind of an incestuous business making cartridges. Very few start from scratch. They grab a, an existing cartridge and they modify it to create something new. But it's always fun to learn the details of this history. Now, I wonder if anyone is going to show up and tell us that there was actually a cartridge from which the Danish stole the design <laughs> and put Sven in the back seat. But Sven, uh, to you and your friends over there in Poland, we really appreciate you listening in and setting us straight on these cartridges. That is really interesting stuff. All right, here is uh, another patron, Adam, asking something. Let's see, any thoughts on the Leupold 6X fixed power scope or fixed power optics in general? I was considering making a super light build Kimber Pro Hunter uh, rifle and pairing it with the Leupold fixed 6x42, which only weighs 13.6 ounces. Do you think that is a sufficient out to 300 yards? Or do you think that the versatility of a variable power scope is more practical. Thanks. Sorry about the uh, spelling and grammar errors, but I'm using my phone. I should probably proofread this before submitting. So I wrote back to Adam, hey, Adam, your sentence structure, your grammar and spelling are just fine. Uh, I think fixed power scopes like the 6X Leupold are ideal for a typical hunting rifle for ranges out to about 300 yards, perhaps even 400 yards. But they offer few, if any, huge advantages other than simplicity and reliability. They have fewer moving parts, so there's less to malfunction or go wrong. But modern variable scopes are remarkably rugged, and they're reliable too, especially those loopholes. And the weight is about the same. Now, my favorite 2.5 by 8 by 36 VX3 loophole scope weighs about 12 or 13 ounces, as I recall. And, it, of course, it provides more versatility than the straight-up 6. Now, one other advantage of a fixed power scope is consistency. You learn what targets look like at 6x and then you're able to better judge range for effective maximum point blank range shooting. The traditional duplex reticle in a loophole provides gaps for subtending targets. A target of one diameter fitting for instance between the center crosshairs and the junction of the fatter bottom post at a certain range. All of this is explained in the loophole scope manual. This can be done with variable scopes too, but sticking with 6X makes it more consistent. As you know, 6X might be a bit 
too much magnification if a big buck or elk jumps up at, say, 20 yards, but you can train to handle that. I used to take jackrabbits at 30 yards with a 10 power weaver target scope. Not ideal, but doable with training. All things considered, I would roll with the 2.5 by 8x variable, but you won't be shortchanged with that fixed 6x. All right, what have we got time for some more patrons here? Should we jump into the regular crowd? Let's do a quick one from Brian. Brian is also a patron. We really appreciate it, Brian. Hello, Ron. I'm not very tech savvy. I've tried to ask this question a couple of times. I have a 98 Mauser action and I want to build a 7mm PRC. But can I have the bolt altered for that PRC case or do I need a different bolt? I really like what you do, so keep it up. Well, thanks, Brian. Let's see if I can come up with the right answer for you here. I wrote him back. Ooh, it says here at 6.10 a.m., so I was up early. Brian, that depends on your bolt face diameter. The 0.470-inch face of the Mauser 98 fits all the 30-06, 7-millimeter Mauser, 8x57 Mauser-sized cartridges, which have that 0.473-inch diameter rim. The Magnum 0.54-inch diameter bolt face of the M98s that one will fit all the belted magnums into 375 H&H class, plus the 404 Jeffrey-based magnums with rims that vary from 0.532 inch to about 0.54 inch. That would include your 7PRC. So you will most likely need a Magnum Mauser action and bolt in order to make the 7PRC work. If you have the standard Mauser action, cartridge based on the 7x57 Mauser and the 36 family will work. Um, a good 7mm alternative to the PRC is the 280 Ackley Improved. It's about mm, 100 feet per second slower, but you should be able to throat a fast twist barrel to fit the same long high BC bullets that the PRC is designed for. So that's an option. Good luck. P.S. My 280 AI has easily handled everything up to and including the biggest Alaskan moose. All right. Thanks, Brian. Now, let's see if we can get to some of the folks who have written us on our website and asked some good questions. Here's one from Zeknar. Zeknar says, this brings to mind another question. I'm not sure what brought it to mind, but he asks, I've been wondering about how a fast twist rate, how fast a twist rate we really need. I think that's what he's asking. Yeah. I'm wondering how fast a twist rate we really do. These new Wonder cartridges for long range increase the twist rate and lengthen the throat to accommodate those longer bullets. Yes. For example, I think a 1 in 8 is standard for a 6.5 Creedmoor. The 308 is 1 in 10. What happens when we go to a 1 in 6 inch twist? And I assume the bullet diameter will have to be smaller. Just wondering about your thoughts on this, Ron. I imagine there's a sweet spot and we will see some crazy stuff come out in the near future. Peace and grace. All right, Zeknar, you are asking a fairly common question these days. I'm getting a lot more questions about twist rate. And we never used to really f worry about it. You know, back in the day, you bought a rifle and it had a certain twist rate. And most of the time, you didn't even know what it was. Because the manufacturers of ammunition knew, and they would build bullets that would stabilize in the standards. Most famously is the 30-06. And as most of us know, it will handle bullets as long as a 220 grain round nose, which takes a lot of spin to stabilize. Uh, yet it'll also stabilize fairly accurately bullets as light as 110 grains, even 100 grains. So that gives you an idea of what an extensive range of bullet weights can be stabilized with one twist rate. 
But these days, it seems like everyone's trying to optimize for long bullets. So they're going to a faster twist and talking about it. Um, and that has got people interested in twist rates and a little bit confused. And I think you're just a little bit confused here too, Zeknar, especially your sentence about bullet diameter needing to be smaller. I mean, I'm not sure where you got that idea, but your bullet diameter is always going to be the same for a specific cartridge and barrel. For instance, your 6.5s use a 0.264 inch diameter bullet in all of them. Regardless of the weight of the bullet, the diameter stays the same. Regardless of the twist rate, the diameter stays the same. So don't get confused about that. And there is no advantage in anyone saying, um, let's take the old 6.5 by 55 Swede cartridge and give it a faster twist rate. Um, it's pretty much fast enough to stabilize most of the bullets we want to shoot in the 6.5 anyway. The only reason you'd want to really crank it up is if you decided you wanted to maybe try a 156 grain boat tail secant ogive long burger style bullet for long range shooting. And then you're going to need the faster twist rate. But if you're not hand loading and really trying to do some extensive long-range shooting in which you're really worried about wind deflection and everything else. Don't worry about your twist rates. Buy your rifle, buy your ammunition, and it's going to be stabilized unless you're playing around the extreme edges. So, um, no, I don't think we're going to see faster and faster twist rates, except for these oddball little cartridges like this 8.6 Blackout which is a very small cartridge in 338 diameter bullets. Uh, And the idea is to shoot them subsonically, which means about 1,000 feet per second or a little slower. And that requires more twist rate. And the bullets that do that atop that little cartridge are the heavy ones up to 300 grains. So you've got a pretty long bullet and a slow bullet. That requires fast twist. And they're making one and three inch twist barrels, which kind of blows everybody away when you think about it. That is a crazy fast twist rate, but it isn't needed on typical cartridges at typical velocities. So don't worry about it. The manufacturers will figure it all out. Okay. Well, let's see what else we've got here. Here is one from uh, Logan. And Logan is asking, uh, he's asking about cameras. Hi, Ron. I've been wanting to get my hands on a good beginner-level camera for wildlife and landscape photography. This is a little bit out of our wheelhouse here, but I think I've covered it a couple of times before in my podcast because I do a lot of wildlife photography and consider it sort of an extension of hunting. To me, it's hunting. It's just shooting with a camera. And the season's always open and there's no bag limit. I love it. (laughs) So let's just help him out. Um, Logan says, I was just curious if you had any recommendations on cameras. I'm not trying to do it professionally. I'm just doing it for fun. I went to Yellowstone back in September and the pictures I took with my phone camera were so grainy. The bison looked like little black blobs from only 50 yards away. I'm going to the Great Smoky Mountain National Park in September of this year and I don't want to make the same mistake. (laughs) Well, those are good questions, Logan. I'm not going to go into big details here, but I would tell you this. It's not so much the camera as the lens that you want to worry about. There are a lot of great, what we'll call starter cameras that are fairly low in price that will do what the camera body needs to do, set the shutter speed and get all the exposures right and everything. But what you need for wildlife photography is more reach, as you found out with your 50-yard bison. 
<laughs> you need a telephoto lens. And a good telephoto lens for wildlife, I think, starts at 300. A better one is 400. And boy, I really get more mileage out of a 600. And that is huge telephoto, which is the equivalent of a 12-power binocular. A 400-millimeter lens would be the equivalent of an 8-power binocular. So that'll give you some idea of your reach and how you're going to get that larger image of, a, of an animal. So uh, look for a good uh, and fairly inexpensive long telephoto lens to fit on whatever body you get. I'm currently shooting a Sigma 150 millimeter to 600 millimeter, fairly inexpensive lens, uh, but wonderfully sharp and effective. Yeah, I think it's a little more fragile some of, than some of the professional grade lenses. Um, it's more likely to wear out and or break more quickly. But as far as image quality, I have no complaints. And it's got a wonderful, versatile range for zooming in and out. Look for something along those lines to mount on your camera. And boy, I think you're going to have some fun because I know I and anyone else who's gotten into wildlife photography really loves it. All right, let's see if we can get back into cartridges and bullets here with our next one. Daniel. Uh-oh, he's taking me to task for something. I see exclamation points. That's always scary. <laughs> Wrong, Ron. 5.56 is not the bullet diameter. I must have said it was. I'm not sure which one he's referring to, but oh, I must have stuck my foot in it. Most metric measurements are true caliber measurements, not bullet measurements. So the 5.56 is a 0.218 to 0.219 inch. This is the barrel diameter before the rifling is cut, or the land-to-land -land diameter. The metric for 0.224 bullet would be 5.7 millimeters. Please fix this issue. Okay, Dan, I'm not sure the issue needs to be fixed. It's just a matter of understanding all of the numbers. And I think you're going a little bit overboard in this because most shooters know that the 5.56 NATO cartridge is pretty much the same as the 223 Remington. The dimensions and everything are the same. A uh, little bit of difference in the chamberings and the throatings and stuff. But everyone knows or should that that particular cartridge along with the 22250 and the 220 Swift and the 22 Hornet and all of these centerfire 22s, they all shoot 0.224 inch diameter bullets. Um, and the bores may be 0 0 0.218 or 0 0.219 land to land, um, or they might be a little bit wider than that, depending on the manufacturer, but they're all within specs and safeties. Um, and they're all using the same bullet. So what, what our concerns are as shooters and hand loaders especially is to just use the right bullet for your cartridge and your rifle. You don't go in looking for, uh, gee, do you have a, a .221 bullet for my uh, .221 Remington rifle? No, that uses a .224. These numbers can mess you up. So just know which one applies. If you're shooting a 6.5 millimeter, you need 0.264 inch diameter bullets. The seven millimeters all use 0.284 inch diameter bullets, et cetera, et cetera. So I appreciate your precision on this one, Dan, but I don't think it's really a big issue that needs to be fixed. Maybe I'm wrong. What do the rest of you guys think? Should we be specifically mentioning the very precise millimeter dimensions of our bores and our bullets? Or are we kind of okay with the standard system? All right, let's see. What do we have here? Ruffin, a gentleman named Ruffin asked, Ron, your statement 
that the Creedmoor is more powerful than the 6.5 by 55 is more than a bit uninformed, as that is only on old actions. He means rifle actions, old rifles. In a modern action, it can be loaded quite a bit hotter than the Creedmoor. I'm not knocking the Creedmoor after seeing Morgan King dominate one day in the World Championships in France, but get your facts straight. Boy, Ruffin, you slipped in under the radar here. I didn't see any exclamation points. I didn't know you were going to be chewing me out. <laughs> but this is this is valid, and it raises an important issue. Ruffin, the reason that I say the um, Creedmoor is more powerful than the 6x5x55 is because in commercial ammunition, it is. All your commercial ammunition is loaded to specs, and that's what you have to adhere to. And even in your hand-loading manuals, they keep the uh, pressure levels down because the chamber, the maximum average chamber pressure, acceptable one in the industry, that has been established by CIP in Europe and by SAMI in the United States. For the 65 by 55 I believe it's 58,000 PSI. No, it might be 51,000 PSI. Double check on that one, but it's pretty low because, of course, it was established way back in 1892, I believe. Whereas the Creedmoor has a higher one. That one's like 60,000 PSI. So there's a lot more pressure. It might even be 62,000 on the Creedmoor. And that enables it to be loaded hotter safely. And as you mentioned, with the right rifle, and if you know what you're doing, you can make the 6.5 loaded up to a little hotter, but we are not recommending hot loads (laughs) and uh, Frankenstein's monster creations down in the lab. (laughs) It's just too dangerous. Every hand-loading manual I've ever seen says, don't do this. And it's a sensible thing because there's too many people who say, well, I'm pretty sure that this modern action is a little stronger, so I can add a few more grains of powder than the book says, and I'll be fine until they show up one day missing some fingers. (laughs) So don't do it, folks. Pay attention to the manuals and all the established specifications. Um, You're on your own if you want to start being the mad scientists in your lab. We certainly don't recommend it. All right, here's something from uh, a Todd. Todd asks, I just found your podcast on Spotify, and I'm enjoying listening back through them. Well, great, Todd. Thank you for that. I have been a small game and upland bird hunter for 50 plus years. Wow. But I have never spent any considerable time shooting or reloading rifle cartridges. I just listened to you detailing the characteristics of different powders. My question is this, do hand loaders ever mix powders? On the surface, it seems like there might be some advantages to that but I have no idea where the pitfalls might be. I'm just curious. (laughs) I wrote him back and said, thanks, Todd. Good question. (laughs) Yes, some hand loaders do mix powders, but it is never recommended and it's usually discouraged if not forbidden. Powder and ammunition manufacturers are in a position to do something like this safely, but hand loaders, not so much. Over the decades, many handloaders have experimented themselves right out of the hands which which they formerly handloaded. <laughs> they do this by experimenting instead of following the proven recipe. So, no, um, I don't recommend it. I recommend against it. Yes, it has been done. It can be done. But as I said to Todd here in my quick answer to him, it's just not something you want to do in the shop. You wanted to leave that to the professionals and stick with the recipes provided in the hand-loading manuals to be safe. 
All right, 600 yards, good or bad? Something from Frazier about long-range shooting, it looks like. Frazier says, I'm kind of peeved at some of the comments here. Now, I'm not sure where here is. This must have come off of a, a YouTube what folks commented or something, and the team pulled it up. The only ethics anyone should be thinking about is, are the hunters following state regulations, and are the animals being dispatched in a timely manner? With the advancements in bullet construction, rifle construction, optical systems, the unethical 600 to 800 yard shot has become a reality. Another thing, a lot of these younger hunters nowadays are getting significantly more trigger time than the old timers did 40 or 50 years ago. The recreational shooting industry has seen a 11% growth in just the last couple of years. These people are spending an additional $1.3 billion a year just shooting. Wow, I didn't know that. So, we have more practiced shooters than ever before with the most capable, capable equipment in the history of arms development. I think he's right on that one. Let's see what they can do with curiosity, not disdain. I've said this more than a few times in recent years. Things are changing and the old timers need to learn to live with that. I think he's talking about me. <laughs> There's no sense in purposefully being a Luddite. If you don't know what a Luddite is, look it up. It's somebody who resists change. Uh, in fact, it behooves them to shirk some antiquated notions and embrace many of the new developments in the industry, not just those related to guns and scopes either. Whew. Well, all right. Thanks for the sermon there, Fraser. You do make some interesting points and probably valid points. Um, it is sort of an old-timers traditional thing that we resist change. You get up after a certain age... You've been there, done that, figured it out, and you don't want to have to do it all over again. <laughs> At least that's the way I feel about it. You, you learn a few cartridges and how to load and shoot them and work well with them, and then all of a sudden the hot new thing comes out and you got to, uh oh, sell the old one and get a new one or start fooling around with the new one and then cram a bunch of new numbers into your heads. And oh my goodness. So eventually you just get tired of all and you realize, you know, that 270 I started off with 40 years ago. Did the job then, and it still does it now, so why do I need to make a change to the 277 Sig Sauer thing, that fury that's coming out? I don't know. But also, you are correct in that times are always changing. New developments are coming along, and we should pay some attention to them. And the fact that the reality, really, that the young folks these days do shoot a lot more and train a lot more and have better equipment does... I think extend legitimately the effective range for, for taking targets. But once again, we come down to that bullet time of flight issue that I think is kind of the ultimate in deciding how far is too far for a, a good ethical shot on game. Wonderful on targets, but when you know that by the time you say go and your trigger responds and uh, the bullet launches and gets to the target, that target could have moved enough to make a deadly shot into a wounding shot. That's a serious consideration. Whether that's at 500 yards or 800 yards depends so much on your bullets and ballistics and everything else, but it's something we do need to consider with ethics. But you're right, Fraser. Um, I think we do need to seriously consider the capabilities of, of the equipment and the shooters and their training and all the rest. And and like my friend Joseph has said, you've got to live and breathe this stuff if you want to be shooting at extreme ranges. It's not something that just comes naturally. You've got to learn the math and learn the trajectories and have the right equipment and use them enough so that it is all kind of second nature, natural, and, well, effective every time. 
So good points. I, I think that helps us start thinking. And that's kind of, I think, what we want to do on this program is get everyone thinking. We don't always have the absolute answers. That's why I'm always saying, hey, straighten me out if I got something wrong, and I will be happy to report it so that everybody gets it right. And uh, yeah, I thank you for that, Fraser. And I also thank uh, everyone else who, who sent things in, especially our patrons. Of course, we always answer our patrons as quickly as we can. Sometimes it takes a couple weeks because we're off on a safari enjoying ourselves. <laughs> so stay tuned uh, for some of the videos and blogs coming up on that safari because, oh, we just had a wonderful time over there, and we're looking forward to going again next year. I thought I was kind of coming to the end of my safari days, and uh, that long plane ride over there is not all that much fun. But gosh, once you get there and you start seeing and hearing all the wonderful wildlife and the opportunities for hunting, and ah, it's so wonderful. So watch for the blogs and the videos coming up on Ron Spomer Outdoors, and we will see you all next time on our next podcast. In the meantime, on Honest and Shoot Straight. <laughs>